0: Well, welcome to the second sermon in our series on the book of Acts. We're going to be doing Acts uh, through the fall up until Advent when we have our four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, and then we're going to restart it in the winter and uh, finish the book of Acts Uh, As I explained last week, back in 2015, we actually started the book of Acts and made it through the first 10 chapters. And it always bugged me that we never finished it. And uh, so we're getting going again. And so last week, we kind of did a speed recap of the first 10 chapters, and today we are in chapter 11. So if you have your print Bible with you, I encourage you to open it uh, to chapter 11. If you missed last week's sermon, You can catch it on our YouTube channel. Uh, It is up there to watch. Or if you prefer the audio, a lot of people do. They told me, Darren, I don't want to watch it. I just want to listen to it. So I can do other things like wash dishes and do whatever you're doing. Uh, You can grab the audio on our website. So those are two ways you can catch up. Uh, As I said, today we are in Chapter 11. And our main takeaway today is going to be around the power of encouragement. First, though... I need to tell you a story about a mother and how she was able to encourage her really depressed son. A mother watched her son drain of energy. He had lost his desire to even get out of bed. She heard the alarm go off through his bedroom door. He just kept hitting the snooze button. After the third time, she realized, I need to go in and and get him out of bed. Son, it is time to get up, she said. He peeked out from under the covers. Can you give me one good reason to get up? She said, yes, in fact, I can give you three reasons. Number one, it's Sunday. It's time to go to church. Second, you're 43 years old and you know better. And third, you're the pastor. The people expect you to be there. I don't know why it's so funny. I think it's only funny because I've had those mornings. Uh, Anyways, I've entitled this morning, uh, Encouragement is on the Scene. And last week I explained that one of the TSN turning points in the book of Acts is the conversion of Cornelius, the Roman soldier. Peter ends up traveling to his house, going inside, explaining the gospel to them and staying for three days that was brand new unprecedented territory faithful jewish people like peter had been raised to be his entire life and countless generations before him you did not enter the home you definitely did not stay for three days and you definitely did not enjoy a meal with non-jewish people with gentiles and yet that's what peter had done This is truly a seismic shift in the landscape. It is such a huge moment that the event happens in chapter 10 and then Luke kind of recaps it as Peter is called to the main church in Jerusalem and asked to explain his actions. We're going to pick it up in chapter 11 verse 1. The apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, "'Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter.'" He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, and as He had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift He gave us, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying then, So, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. What an amazing event. And as I said last week, none of us would be here this morning if that had not occurred. A huge, huge shift and change. And that event had an immediate effect on what happens in the rest of the book of Acts specifically in our chapter today. So we're going to find out what the effect was. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Amazing, amazing passage. Again, last week I explained that there are four TSN turning points in the book of Acts. Certainly the conversion of Cornelius, as we just read, was one of them. And one of the other big events was the martyr of Stephen, the very first Christian to die for his faith. And the subsequent persecution that broke out in that church in Jerusalem. And these Christian believers were forced to uproot their families, loaded up their possessions, presumably kind of sold the rest and headed out. The text tells us they kind of went to three main areas. Cyprus, which is the huge island in the Mediterranean, kind of northwest of modern day Israel. Then they went to Phoenicia which I looked up a map of modern-day Lebanon, and it's almost exactly the same area. So think modern-day Lebanon. And finally, to this city of Antioch. And Antioch would go on to become a really important city of churches and a real hub for Christian missions. Antioch had been founded 360 years before by a man named Seleucus I. It had a large Jewish population and it is considered one of the most beautiful and great cities of antiquity. Candace found some amazing pictures. You can still see the ruins today of Antioch. And God clearly had a plan in all of this. Both allowing that perse- persecution to occur, which forced these people out of Jerusalem and caused them to start sharing their faith. Now, if you remember world history, we're kind of around 34, 35 A.D., jesus has died been resurrected the early church is now starting to expand but just 36 years from that point 36 years later in ad 70 the roman army comes into jerusalem and absolutely crushes it It is one of the more horrific incidents in history i've read reconstructions of it and it just was awful the The streets of Jerusalem just flowed red with the blood of innocent Jewish people killed. What these early Christians experienced in 34 AD must have just seemed like an awful thing. You had to uproot your family, move away, go north. But God was actually doing two amazing things through it. He saved the lives of those early Christians. If they hadn't left at that point, they would have continued to live in Jerusalem, their children would be there, and they would have died in A.D. 70. So God saved their lives, and then number two, He forced those early Christians to be on mission with Him by moving out into an unfamiliar territory. They just took their faith with them and shared. You know, as I was thinking about that this week, it gave me pause to think that maybe next time something bad in my life happens, as I'm turning to God in prayer about it, I need to be open at least to the idea that God just may have a silver lining. He may have a secondary purpose in what I'm going through at the moment. Now I want us to hear me loud and clear this morning. There are horrible, awful, horrific things that happen to people that are not remotely explainable this way. God does not punish or crush us just to achieve some other end. God loves us and cares for us, but we are living in the midst of a sin-broken and ravaged world. And God never promises to keep every hard circumstance away from His people. Sometimes, however, God seems to allow some things to happen to prompt His people out of their comfort zone to push us to get on mission with Him. So these early Christians traveled to Antioch and began to speak to the Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles of the city, and all of a sudden, the non-Jewish people really start responding to the gospel. The, The Holy Spirit's working in their hearts. I love the way the text describes it. It says, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This is big, big stuff. Non-Jewish people becoming Christians. To the church in Jerusalem, this was mind-blowing. They can hardly kind of wrap their heads around it. So they send this guy Barnabas to check it out. And you can kind of see the subtext is Barnabas, go and see what's going on. And if they're just kind of letting anybody become a Christian, then uh, you should probably put the brakes on it or try to control it somehow. But then the unexpected happened. Barnabas arrives. He saw what was going on. He met these non-Jewish Christians. He saw them turning to Jesus in repentance and faith. And because he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit, he saw right away, this is a work of God. This is a movement of God. This is not something human beings can try to control, even if you're well-meaning, and try to shut it down. I absolutely love that description of Barnabas. It says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Wouldn't you love that to be the one-sentence description of your life? Wouldn't that be amazing? Let me pick anybody. Reg was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Ray was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith and faith. Isn't that beautiful? What an amazing description of our life. So what exactly does that mean to be full of the Holy Spirit and faith? Well, to me, it means listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. When you feel that, that tug, that nudging inside, that there's a person you need to go talk to, or there's a neighbor that desperately needs help, or or there's a young mom who's just completely overwhelmed with having so many children. You need to make a meal for her. You feel those little nudges. That's what it means. I think being full of the Holy Spirit also means not going frantic in our life, trying to do everything everywhere all the time, but rather simply taking advantage of the opportunities that God gives us in our path. Two weeks ago, I was having a really busy week at the church and all of a sudden, our elderly neighbor who lives in the basement suite of the house kind of across the street from us, he called up and he just said, Darren, can we talk? And I looked at my day timer and my to-do list and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, Um... yes, we're going to talk. And I just pushed it aside. I went over to his house, and we had the most phenomenal conversation. I couldn't believe it. At 84 years old, this man wanted me to truly explain the gospel to him. What a privilege. I'm so glad I did. And, and I think when God suddenly plunks opportunities in our laps, maybe it's time to just push away some of the things on our to-do list and just seize those moments. Being full of the Holy Spirit, I think it means depending on His power. And his guidance to choose the good and reject the bad. I think in our relationships, being full of the Holy Spirit means to put your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your fiance, or your spouse ahead of yourself. It says in Philippians, don't just look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That is such a key in making relationships work. You know, Barnabas was the best kind of leader. A person so in touch with the Holy Spirit that he instantly recognized that the assignment he was given from the church in Jerusalem was out of step with what God wanted. He immediately saw that the plans and purposes of God were going in a different direction. Amazing, amazing stuff. This brings us to our final passage this morning. Picking it up in verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were, Christ, were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. As a little aside, that was so encouraging what Candace was able to share about our Liberia offering. Apparently it's been going on for 2,000 years. They gave an offering to people that were in desperate need, and so did we. I love it. That connection of the church all these years later. Well, I'm not exactly sure what Barnabas' original plan was. He probably intended to go from Jerusalem up to Antioch, assess the situation, deal with it, and then go back to Jerusalem. But he was such a person filled with the Holy Spirit, constantly listening to what God wanted, that he changed his plans. We never read of Barnabas having a wife or children, so he was probably single, flexible enough to change his plans. So instead of going back down south to Jerusalem, he actually goes north to the city of Tarsus to find Saul, the former persecutor of the early church. And Paul, as we saw last week, one of the other TSN turning points, met Jesus in such a dramatic fashion on the road. Did this huge turnaround, and now Saul is in the city of Tarsus. I'm sure that early church in Antioch was just buzzing, talking about this guy. Remember, Saul used to try to hunt us down? The guy who stood there while Stephen was killed? He has met Christ, he's done a big turnaround. And so, Barnabas again probably overcame a bit of fear, but in obedience, the Holy Spirit goes up and finds this guy. Now, he didn't have an address. He kind of had to wander around the city until he found Saul. Amazing. And then this happens. It says, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now Saul, or as we know him, the Apostle Paul, was a brilliant guy. One time I heard someone describe all the rigorous training that he would have gone through as a Jewish guy to work his way up to be a Jewish religious leader. Really intense, almost kind of the modern day equivalent of having a master's degree. And once he met Jesus Christ and responded in repentance and faith... God took all that sharp mind, that training that he had, and to it, he added the spiritual gift of teaching, the spiritual gift of wisdom and miracles. As Paul gave himself 100% to the mission of Jesus, God equipped him with everything he needed to be phenomenally effective. I love the faith and trust and encouragement that Barnabas gave Paul. I'm sure Paul grew in confidence over that year. It's not easy to go from being a persecutor to one of the main teachers of the church. I think Barnabas being right there with Paul, being his right-hand man for, was just huge for him. I actually found out in verse Acts 4.36, I don't think I'd ever noticed this. Barnabas is not his real name. It's a nickname. The apostles gave him that nickname. His real name was Joseph, But they gave him the name Barnabas. They nicknamed him that because it means son of encouragement. Encouragement just flowed out of this guy. It was just who he was. He was that kind of rock-solid person who comes into a situation or a group of people and just kind of lifts everybody up. This guy was generous, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and God constantly used him to take that church in Antioch to the next level, and really, the Apostle Paul, going from Saul the persecutor to Paul the missionary. Made me think that sometimes we kind of minimize the power of encouragement. There's a man named Dean Merrill, he wrote a Christian book called Another Chance, How God Overrides... Our big mistakes. He tells this amazing story in that book. It was about a Christian man who was an accountant and he was doing it for a number of years. And then he got involved doing the books for this huge company. And it finally the pressure built, and he gave in to the pressure. He fudged the books so this big company wouldn't have to pay so much tax. He was caught, he was kicked out of the accounting profession. He was a Christian, so he just felt so much guilt and shame over what he had done. It was hard for him to even kind of get out of bed in the morning and get a new direction, but he needed to. needed to put a food on the table for his family, so finally he was able to get a job as a laborer for a construction company. And they were doing these big uh, office buildings, lots of concrete work, and he was suddenly plunged into a drastically different routine every day. Instead of going to the office each day, he was hauling loads of concrete block up to the fifth level of a construction site. Gone was kind of the music in the offices and the hallways. Now he had to endure the cheap radios of his co-workers. Any girl who walked by the construction site got all the rude remarks and whistles by the guys on the job site. Swear words shot through the air, especially from the foreman in charge whose primary tactics seemed to be kind of intimidation and whining. He would often hear, for blankety blank's sake, can't you do anything right? I've never worked with such a bunch of blankety-blanks in all my life. Near the end of the third week, the new employee felt like, I can't take any more of this. I'm going to work till break time, and then that's it. I'm going home. He had already been the butt of more than one joke, for the mistake he made, his lack of experience showing. The story was retold constantly after. He's thought to himself, I just can't handle any more of this. And as break time thought, he goes, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll just go to lunchtime and then I'll, I'll finish up and I'll get out of this place. And shortly before noon, the foreman came around giving her out the paychecks. As he handed this guy his paycheck He made the first civil comment to him he had made in three weeks. He said, hey, there's a woman that works in the front office who knows you. She says she takes care of your kids sometimes. And he said, oh, what's her name? And so the foreman told him the woman's name and then moved on, kept passing out paychecks to the rest of the guys. And instantly this guy knew that must be the woman who volunteers in the nursery at the church where we go. Then the man opened up his paycheck, and inside the envelope was the check, and then there was this handwritten note from that woman. It says, when one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer with it. Just wanted you to know that I'm praying for you these days. He just couldn't believe it. He stared at the note, astonished at God's timing. He hadn't even known the woman worked for the company. And here, when he was at his lowest moment, ready to quit, she had given him the courage to go on, to push another wheelbarrow up to the fifth floor. The power of encouragement. And I think that is exactly what Barnabas was for Paul. Go get him from Tarsus, befriend him, work alongside him, encourage him. Paul would go on to become the most prolific church planter in the first four centuries of the church. God used him to write 28% of the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. God used him to bring the good news of the gospel, the message about Jesus, to the non-Jewish world. Paul would never have achieved those heights if it hadn't been for Barnabas. So that brings it down to you and I here this morning, watching on our live stream. Husbands, are you an encourager to your wife? And I don't just mean once a year on her birthday, I mean each and every day. Do you compliment her for the hundreds of things she does in a day? What about when your wife accomplishes a big project at work? Who gives her more kudos, her coworkers or you? If the co-workers are beating you in the encouragement department, maybe it's time for the look in the mirror. Maybe you're in the young children's stage and your wife is home with the kids. Have you noticed and complimented the outing she does with the kids? Have you noticed and complimented the fact that she cleans up mess after mess after mess all day long? Have you noticed and complimented the way she tries to teach kids and things in the yard or in the kitchen, even though she knows it's going to be three times the mess than if she had just done it herself. Teenagers, are you an encourager to your parents, your grandparents, or your caregivers? Being a parent is a tough assignment. It's a tricky deal for your mom and dad. It's hard to know always what to say or what to do. If you're in high school or middle school this morning and you're listening, I want you to see that your parents are trying. Maybe not always getting it right, but they're trying. Why don't you do something shocking and surprising? Why don't you encourage them? You would be pleasantly surprised by how that might change the atmosphere in your home. Encouragement is a high calling. But it is one that God, through the powerful example of Barnabas and Paul, wants us to do. You see, Barnabas was a really good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and he helped another man, Paul, become great. I said last week in the introduction of this series that Acts plays out like one big adventure story, and I hope you find yourself inspired and reminded this morning that the Word of God, though it was written 2,000 years ago, is powerful and able to change and instruct our lives here today. There's no other book in human history that has that kind of power and that reach to reach down over two millenniums and change our lives. Amen? Ryan, come pray for us.